Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm Jake. And I'm Jason. We started this during the coronavirus pandemic, so unfortunately we had to record in separate locations. We apologize for any audio hiccups. Today, we're going down the rabbit hole of cyber-enabled information warfare. Do you want to maybe start us off with a quick definition on what cyber-enabled information warfare is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's using cyberspace as a vehicle for information warfare, which is different than the cyber warfare that we hear on TV or we read in the paper. Uh, And in the information age, it's probably the most important vehicle for information warfare. So the cyber warfare that we hear a lot of politicians or maybe media or other sources talking about usually deals with things like computer network attacks, traditional cyber attacks that can have kinetic effects on the physical realm or other computers, networks, servers, etc. How is this different from that? So we're really talking about information when we're talking about cyber-enabled information warfare. And when we talk about computer network attack, we're forgetting about how people think about the actual attack. So when we wage information warfare, we're trying to change opinions or even change how national leaders think about situations, which then change how they go about deciding the next steps for the nation. So with those you know, general characteristics of cyber-enabled information warfare, something that we'll often see referred as CEIW in mind, uh, what makes it relevant to the United States? Well, uh, looking at the near-peer adversaries that the U.S. has have, they do it very well. Uh, It's a key tool for them to achieve political and strategic goals. And do you want to give some maybe specific examples about what type of countries are are doing this that we should be aware of? Yeah, when when we're talking about our adversaries, um, I think we are really talking about Russia and China, and we know that they have a very clear ability to wage CEIW. So with, let's, let's just break this down one by one in terms of the two main adversaries that we're talking about. With Russia, we hear a lot of things about you know troll farms, bot accounts that you see on Twitter, Facebook, other social media aspects. Does that fall into cyber-enabled information warfare? Yeah, absolutely. They can use those different means that you talked about to launch propaganda assaults or even amplify extremely polarizing views that really aren't even widely held, but they can amplify it to the point where we think that those are actually common ideas. And we see that from far-right ideas and far-left ideas. They're not trying to focus on one. It's really about pitting two ideas against each other so people don't really know what exactly to believe. And then when it comes to China, do we see similar things coming in out of there, or is it a little bit different? Well, China does do it a bit different. Um, They really have a really good domestic information control. Uh, We see it with the Uyghurs too, right? We know that there are massive human rights problems going on, but they try very hard to control how it's talked about within their country and to try to obfuscate how people in other countries see what's going on. So it's very difficult to parse what is true and what the Chinese government's kind of trying to push on us to think is true. So with those two countries, just general examples there, we'll get into some specifics in a second. But I think it's fair to say that cyber-enabled information warfare is clearly a tool that our adversaries are using and the U.S. needs to be aware and really overall prepare to counter and even on a basic level deter some of these ideas or recognize that it's actually happening in their country. Would you say that's accurate? A hundred percent. And I think it's also important that we bring in some definitions from the government about cyber warfare and cyber attacks. So 
it's not just us theorizing about it. So I'm going to read from the Department of Homeland Security that cyber attacks are malicious attempts to access or damage a computer system. So you can see how talking about those bounds really leaves out the information side of it and how people perceive the information. So when you're trying to deter against something like cyber-enabled information warfare or recognize or counter it, it's important to know exactly what we're talking about. And we're making the case here that the U.S. government maybe doesn't see it in the correct way. Is that is that fair? Yes. It's the classic definition issue that as right. soon as we defined it, then we started thinking all about it. So we defined it way back in 1972. And I'm going to pull this straight from Cyber Command. In 1972, we defined remote attacks against the computer and networks of the Department of Defense. So right there, you can see we're focusing on networks. We're not thinking about how information transiting them can be manipulated or even uh, false information can be sent through. Right. So as we're thinking about those in, in the past tense, I guess, in the 70s definition, or maybe even we're into the early 90s and 2000s, our adversaries are thinking about it in different ways. And I think it would be important for us to mention some specific examples about how China and Russia are using cyber-enabled information warfare against us. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you go into some? So we'll start with Russia. Obviously, um, the 2016 election is a big one that we've talked about, kind of hinted at with the Facebook and Twitter account stuff. We'll get into that in a second. But a more uh, relevant example in terms of time, we've seen a lot of the coronavirus stuff and COVID-19 get talked about uh, in the Russian media in a more, I guess I could say, interesting way than, than we talk about it here in the United States. Yeah. In fact, there was a, a graphic published um, talking about the chronology of Russian information operations surrounding the coronavirus. And it really paints a picture of Russia being this bastion of stability. It tries to push narratives that Russia is the only one who can stop the coronavirus from spreading. It talks about how the U.S. is and the West in general are incapable. It talks about how uh, Russia needs to support them like Back when the United States took aid from Russia, they capitalized on that and really twisted the story. Yeah, and there's some specifics here, especially with you know Russia trying to drive a wedge through the EU, especially following Brexit. You see them publish information or disinformation, excuse me, saying that the EU did not give any attention and support to Italy where people were dying without help. Italy has not received any aid from its European allies. Again, NATO doesn't help its European allies fight against coronavirus. So anything really to drive uh, a wedge between two different sides is something we see a lot from the Russians when it comes to disinformation and cyber-enabled information warfare. Absolutely. And let's just bring it back to another hot-button topic, the Black Lives Matter movement. We have seen the same ideas of driving wedges between populations happening inside the United States. And they really take these fringe comments and ideas and blow them up and make them trending on Twitter and on Instagram. They make them popularly used hashtags that will just show up on your Explore page. And this is a form of information warfare, right? It's not just something that's a little bit, you know, out of the ordinary or it's uh, individuals making decisions to do this. It's, it's a pretty, you know, government-sponsored, well-thought-out plan, right? 100%. Even if it's not government-sponsored, it's government-supported. Right. Um, and the thing we have to keep in mind when we're talking about information warfare, it's about creating an air of doubt 
in what you're reading is true. So now we've seen the New York Times and the Washington Post stories being called fake, or they're saying that the reporters are pushing their own agenda. And when people turn to social media to see what's being said, that is a clear opening to try to uh, change the discourse from something that can be two sides mutually agreeing there's an issue and conversing about it, now to it being polarized, to it feeling like an us against them. And that's the idea. So, so Russia wants to drive a wedge between two parts of a society or two parts of, his, or, of an organization like the EU, as we just talked about with mm-hmm. the COVID crisis or the Black Lives Matter crisis in the United States. How is that different from what China's doing? Well, and obviously feel free to jump in, but China, China looks to create a very stable information space within their country. And we know that that's what China's doing. We've known for a long time. The Great Firewall is, we laugh about it, but -hmm. it's true. They're trying to really taper down on dissent. Like in Hong Kong, another issue that is still ongoing in the new national security law, that it's it's really about the information that people are sending to each other. They want to make sure that there's no nothing going against the Communist Party. Well, Russia wants to divide you externally. China wants to control you internally and really limit what's being seen of China on the outside. I know one of the other incidents we talked about a lot was the clear blatant racism of of black people in China being racially abused. Yes, and that absolutely. went viral. And then when that happened, the Chinese government really cracked down about you know, who was able to see that information, who was able to process it. We saw some similar things with the first – couple images that came out of China following the outbreak of the of the COVID pandemic. I don't know if you remember those, the hazmat suits spraying down yes. town that came out originally. Yes. That's something that China really wants to control is who sees that and who does it. Um, so their, their information warfare is more protecting their own image. Yeah. Trying to portray something from the outside. Yeah, absolutely. You can say that. And you mentioned the, the hazmat uh, suit images. Um, there was other stories about nurses or medical workers reaching out and giving their side, and then mysteriously, like they retract their story because they now right. don't stand behind it. So, right. and we know that that is classic China. Once dissent is found, they try to root it out. And although it doesn't seem like they're waging war on another country, they are using information and especially cyber-enabled information to change people's opinion of their country or to limit people's opinion of their country. Right. And that's the operative word is opinion, right? Because going back through history, if there was a positive opinion about another nation, then the leaders were more likely to engage that nation. So China, as China is rising, if there's a positive image of China, then it doesn't make them look threatening. And that's the idea about changing opinion. Right. Even And now cyberspace connects us all 24-7 if you can change our opinion so fast, then you ha- can really choose your place in the world. And I guess this would be an important time to point out that information warfare isn't necessarily something that's a modern concept, right? We've, we've talked about this before in terms of you know propaganda, leaflets, radio ads, newspaper ads are all forms of information warfare. Exactly. But now it's a lot easier through the vehicle of cyberspace in the way that, like you said, it connects us all internationally, digitally in a split second, right? And that, that is the most important 
idea about cyberspace because it connects us so fast. You can get notifications on your phone as soon as President Trump tweets something. I can I can read it. Where right. it used to be, you know, weeks between a newspaper transiting the Atlantic or even months um, moving it on on carts or something. Now it's so immediate that you get potentially false reports coming out, but because those are the information, that's the information you have, that's the information you work off of. So if, if information warfare really isn't a new concept, it's fair to say that cyber-enabled information warfare kind of is, and that the 2016 election here in the United States really is the poster child for how you run a cyber-enabled information <laughs> warfare campaign, right? Yeah, I guess we should talk about that elephant in the room, the 2016 right, yeah. campaign. Uh, yeah, it, it really is. And when we have to know, we have to state that 2016 didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't start on you know January 1st at 12.01 a.m. Right. They, were, they were laying the groundworks for two or three years before it. And we know that that was happening now looking back. So specifically, what kind of actions or activities did we see from Russia that helped them to run this cyber-enabled information warfare campaign? So – there were actually a few different broad categories of cyber-enabled information warfare uh, that they carried out. And in it, they they did use kind of an infrastructure exploitation, so to break into systems and gather information. So that is a, that, that's one of the points where, you know, cyber attacks and information warfare, what we're talking about here, overlap. A cross-section. Exactly. It's like a Venn diagram. Yes. Um, and you know, there's also strategic publication, um, timing of when they were going to leak things. Uh, we know that they hacked into the Democratic National Committee. We know they hacked into the Clinton email. So the information they gathered, um, they didn't just dump whenever. They chose times when they were going to put this information in the public sphere. Uh, and there was, it was all very planned. Um, a good example, I'm going to turn it over to you for false front engagement, but this is one of my favorite examples. The the Texas protest? Yeah, the Texas protest. Yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll preface this by saying that the the strategy that everyone's probably a little bit more familiar with is the use of Facebook and Twitter to create these fake accounts and stir up controversy, right? Yes. So we see bot accounts, as we'll call them, or bot nets you'll sometimes see used to, is you know just the creation of a fake account that's that's goal is to create that division and push people more to opposite parallels or to swing support of something, right? Mm-hmm. So before we get into the Texas one, I'll talk about another one that we find interesting is there was a meme going around in 2016, mostly on Facebook, shocker, where you have um, Donald Trump projected as an angel arm wrestling. Oh, yes, yes. The devil. Um, and obviously that one gets, you know, it's, it's, it comes from a Russian source. It's, it's been created in this mock lab. Exactly. Right? But what does that image do of the devil and the and and Jesus, God? Like that's yep. such an identifiable image. Exactly. So they know what they're doing. It's a targeted campaign to get people in support of a candidate or to isolate them and push them further to opposite sides. But yes, the Texas one, which had real world effects that you know we always find the most interesting, um, is that these Russian troll farmers organized a protest and counter protest simultaneously in Houston, Texas, regarding Muslim Americans' rights and the prospective travel ban that Trump was talking about after he was inaugurated. This is before it actually happened, but it was in the lead up to when he was talking about it. So Russian operatives actually impersonated a real nonprofit organization on Facebook that supported Muslims in America and was against the Trump executive order. And they also created a fake 
anti-Muslim Texas Facebook page who is directly opposed to the mission of the nonprofit organization they were also portraying. So what they did was they got the two fake groups to engage on social media, nasty comments, uh, pictures and memes that were, you know, kind of a little bit disgusting um, to, to, to most people who would view them. And then they created a protest for the anti-Muslim group to go rally outside of uh, a park and the fake uh, nonprofit organization responded by saying, we will be there to counter protest. And again, none of these leaders, again, from the, pers- from the perspective, fake organizations actually were real. They just convinced a bunch of innocent Americans who were on opposite sides of an issue to listen to a fake Facebook account. And they both showed up at um, this park to protest. And I'm quoting from a Business Insider article here from 2016 uh, that has pictures of some white men in MAGA hats holding the Confederate flag. And then on the opposite side of the street, we see uh, women and children, men, all holding signs that say, peace on earth, this is everyone's country, no hate, welcome, Muslims are welcome in our community, etc. So once again, these people were convinced by fake operatives to go and do this. And it just shows that the cyber realm can have real world effects, even if it's not through a traditional attack, but through information. And another point about that is it was, it was kind of the perfect example because you have the adversary, Russia in this case, controlling both sides. And you use the word innocent Americans, and I yeah. think that was great because these were people who were just trying to connect with other people who thought like them. And wasn't right. that the, the idea of social media, connect with <laughs> other people? But then you have an adversary controlling how you connect. So that changes. Go ahead. The best part is that the, the people who were there protesting against uh, the uh, organization that was in favor of Muslims, so the people that were protesting ag- in favor of Trump's executive order, were asked on the scene, like, who are they here supporting? Like, what organization is so daft enough to put on a uh, protest about, like, anti-Muslim uh, uh, support in Those, the middle of the day? Their and answer they, has to be great. They didn't have an answer. They oh, that's both. <laughs> There's no organization that I support. I just saw the protests on Facebook. A bunch of my bunch of my buddies were also going to be here, so I showed up too. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things where people will do whatever social media tells them, and that's one of the fallouts that we see happen, like you said, when an adversary takes control, right? Exactly, and, and protesting and using your right to assemble and gather, it's ingrained in America. It's one of our founding principles, so it just – it shows how easily you can use someone's supposedly positive founding principles – against them. Okay, so we have examples here of China suppressing information on the international stage, right? Even if there are some human rights concerns that the US may might like to be involved in. Yeah. Especially we saw, you know, a lot of people our age and, and older and younger too, to be fair, concerned yeah. about Hong Kong and concerned about the Uyghur uh, issue more recently, right? And- We've also seen Russia um you know, conduct information operations uh, through cyberspace in the United States in the election. Right. There are some anecdotes of it happening in 2018, again, that we would probably give credit to if we were discussing that. And there's been a host of others. So that, that begs the question, is the U.S. set up properly to deal with cyber-enabled information? And honestly, I'm, I'm going to say flat out no, just no. not at all. And it, just start us off with a basic example of why. Right. So in the beginning, I mentioned how we – defined what a remote attack against networks was in 1972, right? 1972 er, er, decades ago. And we're really hamstrung because that one definition kind of set us up for how we operated in cyberspace. So the entire history of the U.S. setting itself up, organizing and operating in cyberspace was really 
focused on the wrong use of cyberspace. And just to reiterate, that's the more physical aspect, right? The cyber attacks against computer networks, servers, all that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. And and honestly, in, in the beginning, that was probably the correct focus, right? That there was a gap in the network security, so they had to make sure it was defended. And if we had that vulnerability, other people probably did too, right? Mm-hmm. That's, not a, that's not an incorrect assessment. But what we're saying is that the it didn't evolve. The, the idea of how we thought about it didn't evolve with cyberspace. So Cyber Command is the head of the U.S.'s cyber department, right? I'm going to put that in air quotes, department. That Cyber Command is the end-all, be-all when it comes to how we organize for cyberspace. Again, along with some other individual components like the NSA and the CIA, all have their own cyber components. It really across government, but Cyber Command is where the buck stops. Is um, say. With, with in the Department of Defense, yeah, it sure. is. Yeah, we have to say that Cyber Command is part of the DoD. Yeah. Um, but yes, it is co-located with the NSA. So U.S. Cyber Command does have a very heavy hand in our. Uh, cyber operations. So how would you how would you say they're they have been organized to to compete in cyberspace? Is it flawed? Is it is it is it excellent? I'm going to guess the answer to this, but I'll let you answer anyway. <laughs> um. So I want to say that. Uh, well, sh- I guess we should we should really go into like the history of sure. how Cyber Command yeah. got right. So in I'm going to take this straight from Cyber Command's uh, website. It's history, so I'm not going to butcher anything. Um. And what we'll see is there are a few trends that pop up. So first, in 1998, now we're talking about the late 90s instead of 1972, um, Joint Task Force Computer Network Defense uh, comes on, and then it then subsequently becomes Joint Task Force Computer Network Operations um, at the end of 1999, so we'll say at the start of 2000. Moving on from that, U.S. Space Command, and it's different from the Space Force we know now, but U.S. Space Command takes control of it. Um, in two th- Cyber Command, that is. The fledgling Cyber Command, right? Yep. The Joint Task Force Computer Network Operations. Got it. Uh, Space Command takes that in 2002. Then in 2004, Space Command is, is no more, and it become, the Cyber Arm becomes Joint Task Force Global Network Operations, in 2005, we stand up this new uh, component called the Joint Functional Component Command Network Warfare, which is just a mouthful to say. Um, in 2008, they merge, sort of. Um, network warfare takes operational control and facilitates um, integrating cyberspace oper- operations. Um, then in 2010... Uh, cyber is moved to U.S. Strategic Command. Um, it's created as a sub-unified command. So for those in, not in the military, it Me. is a... Yes, you. Uh, didn't want to call you out on that one. But it, it, it's a command that is subordinate to U.S. Cyber Command... or um, I'm sorry, U.S. Strategic Command. So it, it takes its direction from them. Uh, and then President Trump on August 18th, 2017... And that although the, the specific data is not necessary, 2017 is an important um, year because we elevate Cyber Command from under U.S. Strategic Command to now it's it's called a unified combatant command responsible for cyber operations globally. So that's the, that's the lineage. So let's take a quick step back and discuss the lineage and maybe a more accessible frame. Obviously, the, the specifics are important to know, especially the – 
uh, where where it falls and where it didn't. But in a in a more general saying, you would say that it's kind of been passed around as to you know who's going to handle it, and maybe as a little bit of an afterthought, right? Oh yeah, that that's good. Passed around and who's going to handle it are exactly the words I'd use. And what we see even from the the naming of it, we say computer network defense, yep. computer network operations. Yep. Um, global network operations, network warfare. So they're all they're all looking at attack and defensive networks. Well our adversaries are now looking at it in that light, correct? Correct. And though at the in the late nineties they may have been, they definitely evolved where the US didn't. And also, I mean you're you haven't served in the military, but you have studied um, the government structure in depth and U.S. Strategic Command, do you think that that's the best fit for cyberspace operations? No, and this isn't anything personal, but we see a lot of these Strategic Command leaders who have backgrounds in in space, who have backgrounds in traditional missile control, nuclear weapons, and that kind of stuff, where the cyber stuff is kind of maybe, again, an afterthought to them, right? And it's it's a hierarchy thing where they get caught up in one track minded and they get handed this new thing, which is the the gem cyberspace that everyone wants to be important, but no one knows what to do with. And then it kind of just gets lost, like you said, in strategic command and other, and other combatant commands. Exactly. And now I think it, it is important. Um, this is a very small detail about how we are uh, arrayed in cyberspace. We think cyber command is that one front in the department of defense, but you know, Marines, they're in charge of supporting U.S. Special Operations Command. The Air Force supports Central Command, Africa Command, Northern Command. Uh, the Army supports European Command, Strategic Command, Transportation Command. So it's each force is then kind of divvied up to these uh, area commands. So we're not even like one unified front because right. we know each individual uh, service does things a little differently. But now we have those in charge of supporting full area commands. So you said something very important at the end of your last little anecdote there about how under President Trump, Cyber Command was elevated to its own combatant command, correct? Yes. And that kind of signaled the turning point. Maybe it's a, res- uh, a result of the problems in the 2016 election. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a coincidence. We would probably say that there's a little bit of both going on there, mm-hmm. right? But what, where does that leave Cyber Command as its own standoff? Like, what is the current status of what's going on with Cyber Command and how they're positioned to handle cyber enabled information warfare? Honestly, I, I don't think that Cyber Command is set up to answer cyber enabled information warfare, right? And again, I'm just going to go directly to um, Cyber Command's website because their mission statement and which frames how they operate. Uh, and gives us the best look into their operations. Their mission statement mentions nothing about how cyber operations feed into and enable information operations um, at large. It's about defending the Department of Defense Information Network. It's about providing support to combatant commanders. And it's about, and this is the key one, right? Strengthening our nation's ability to withstand and respond to cyber attacks. And And we would go ahead. We would say that what we define as cyber-enabled information warfare doesn't match up with the U.S.'s hamstrung definition of cyber attacks, right? Exactly, because when we talked about the Department of Homeland Security, a cyber attack is a malicious attempt to access or damage a computer system. Not an information attack. Exactly. A piece of information warfare. I'm going to try to use the correct terminology (laughs) here, which I think is important. No, absolutely. Terminology is is perfect. And right now is a good um, point to mention that 
the, the Department of Defense has joint doctrine, right? When each service is operating together, there is um, joint doctrine so that no one service has their doctrine um, overmatches another, right? Right. So they came up with information operations doctrine, and it states that cyber is a subset of information and that the information environment has three subcategories. The third one is the psychological, but we seem to always miss the psychological side of cyber. Right. And that's, again, we're just hamstrung by our definitions and how we place things. So just to sum up what kind of what we've been talking about here, the history of the U.S. organizing in cyber has kind of left us in a pretty poor position currently from yeah. being passed around, even when it gets elevated to where President Trump has put it in 2017. Our adversaries have been looking at it in that light since maybe the early 2000s, right? So we're a good decade behind when it comes to reorganizing. A decade and, is putting it lightly. Right, especially <laughs> with our bureaucratic red tape. It would take exactly. us a lot longer than a decade to make up for that decade or more. So let's just wipe all that away again with our magic ball, look into the crystal <laughs> ball and figure out if we didn't have to deal with any of that bureaucratic red tape, if we weren't 10 years behind how would we like to see the u.s be more prepared to handle cyber enabled information warfare well like right off the bat and this is a a very short term um recommendation or really two right i think one we have to make sure our cyber components and our cyber commands are subordinate to information warfare commands so i know that um very recently c4 isrnet came out with a article looking into how the the, for, the services are modernizing. And it did show that information warfare was becoming a more understood topic. But still, like right now in the Army, U.S. Information Command is subordinate to U.S. or, I'm sorry, Army Cyber Command. And that's just backwards. That's completely right. backwards. And second, in order to rectify that backwards structure... We need to expand our definition of what cyberspace means and how it is an operational domain. And we've been operating on this idea that cyberspace is the fifth domain since 2004. And we really need to include the psychological impact if we're going to be able to fight CEIW. Those are just two of mine. I'm sure you have other ways. Yeah, I think there's a couple things we need to do. Um, for one, I think we need a better executive for cyberspace in the White House. Um, there was a position that was that was operating in the White House before the Trump administration that was then canceled when his, I believe, new DNI entered. I might have my facts incorrect there, so I'm not going to delve any deeper. But we don't really have a cyber-specific executive in the White House to report to the president exactly on what's happening in cyberspace, especially within the information domain of cyberspace. Um, two, we need to work with our private entities a little bit better, specifically our social media companies. A lot of the time, Zuckerberg, Jack from Twitter, uh, and the like are criticized about their data protection for Americans. Of course. And it's a hot topic that we'd like to talk about. Um, and then around election time, we like to talk about what it means to have bot accounts and troll farms operating on their platforms. But other than that, it kind of flies under the radar until it's you know noticed again. So we need to work better in that domain. Um, um, yeah, you you ahead. mentioned um, the social media accounts, and I think that a really useful uh, help in identifying cyber-enabled information warfare is social network analysis. It is not a new concept in any way, but if if the U.S. government can develop a very robust network analysis capacity, then we can find these 
um, bot accounts or these nodes of misinformation or disinformation. So those are both really the three things we talked about, reorganizing, having better executives in, in, in the executive department and also executive branch, excuse me, and then using our social media companies to our benefit. Those are kind of short-term things that could pretty much be done overnight, right, for the most part, even if they're just a memo that goes out. Yeah, if you I'd, look say, at more, I'd say short to medium, but yeah. Yeah. So then if we look at medium to long, right, I think we, we both agree that the U.S. needs to work on – conducting cyber enabled information warfare itself to act as some sort of a deterrent to be, you know, if you do this, we can do it too. Um, we also need to work to eliminate the nation's vulnerability when it comes to cyber enabled information warfare. Again, these are more grandiose long-term strategy exactly. type things, but th th there's more to that story, right? Right, exactly. And the deterrence um, idea you bring up, uh, we should really, really uh, hone in on the idea that you don't have to deter cyber with cyber. Um, and we can get into a whole different discussion on deterrence. But just as a quick note for this, you don't need to deter information warfare with information warfare. You right. could deter it other ways. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you our last question. What do you think that people of our age or people studying international relations or just interested in the topic really need to know about cyber-enabled information warfare? Um, I think that it is – the most important point is that it is always happening – there is no start or stop to information warfare in the modern age. And if you're going to get your news, you cannot look at Facebook, at Twitter, <laughs> at Snapchat, at TikTok, especially not TikTok. We'll get um, to that soon. Exactly. Another episode. But you can't look at these social media platforms and see what's trending. Read the posts on the social media platform and, and say that you understand the topic. You need to go to third-party sources. You need to read your local newspapers. You need to read independent analysts um, analysis, I'm sorry, of the situation. And I would just – I agree with that. I would add that you know, it, as a, someone who's either interested in this topic or wants to know more, you should know that the U.S. isn't prepared and that we need to take steps to – um, fix that. And I, I doubt it would factor into your voting preferences because it's such a niche issue and it probably won't get talked about. But when it comes to how can we be better at this, there are a litany of ways to do that. And we, we hope to you know stir up the conversation about some ways to do that, but there are ways to improve. Exactly. And we, this is not to say that like you bring up the voting preferences. This isn't a, a partisan issue, right? We're not saying one party does it better than the other. This is this is just a an American issue that we all need to see is an actual issue. We have to understand it. Well, that looks like the end of this rabbit hole. Thanks for listening. If you have a topic you want us to cover, please send it our way. You can find us on Twitter at downtrh. You can put your comments under the SoundCloud episode. Or you can email us at downtrh.pod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our next episode coming soon, all about TikTok.